This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Not one but two suitors for 20th century Fox, 21st Century Fox this week. Good to be popular. Comcast and, uh, yeah, Disney. And to talk about it, we have Tara LaChapelle. She's the M&A columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. And we have Gita Raghunathan, who is the technology and media analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. Welcome to both of you. Tara, said, Tara wrote something uh, really fascinating uh, today in her analysis of the deal. She said that Comcast's offer, although uh, more than Disney's, was not as l- much more. And uh, explain it to us. Your opinion. Right. Yes, my opinion. <laughs> I'm an opinion columnist. But yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a little tricky. But the way you need to look at these offers is that it's going to take a long time for a deal to get done. You know, whether or not the AT&T ruling earlier this week means that it's a slam dunk, I, I don't think so. I think there's still going to be a little bit of regulatory pushback. And it takes a while for big deals to close just because they're so large. So you need to consider, you know, the $35 share all cash offer from Comcast. You're not going to get that for a few months, maybe a year, maybe longer. Longer, that money is worth less the longer it stretches out. So the point is, if, if you were to assume, if you were to discount that back to today, that offer is worth not much more than what Disney is offering with their shares right now. And of course, Disney's uh, we're, we're prepared for the next few days for Disney to come back with a counter offer. They've got five, right? Yes, they've got a five-day business, uh, five-business day window to uh, come back. They have a match right as part of their uh, agreement with Fox, and I think they will. I think they're really committed to this deal. I mean, it, it's frustrating for them that Comcast came in last minute and and tried to break it up, but I think that they can offer a little bit more. They certainly have the balance sheet if they want to give a little bit of cash, if that seems what it, what it will take to get Fox's minority shareholders on board. Um, but I don't think it needs to go much higher than this. Let's bring in Gita Ranganathan, our technology media analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, our in-house group of researchers. Uh, Gita, what are some of the criteria or specifics that uh, you are looking when it comes to Comcast-Fox combination versus Disney-Fox combination? So I think uh, for both of them, for both Comcast and Disney, this is really a rare acquisition opportunity. Fox is the last major scaled uh, media operator, has some great content assets as well as a fantastic international footprint. Um, now, w- with respect to Comcast, this is an all-cash offer, uh, which means that there will be a substantial tax burden for the Murdochs, something that they really want to avoid, which is why I think they prefer the Disney um, stock deal, um, just because they, they're not going to have to deal with those tax inefficiencies. And I think from a longer-term strategic point of view, even though the Comcast offer um, is slightly higher, um, I, I think I don't think the Murdochs want to cash out just yet. Uh, I really think that they want to be um, a shareholder in the pro forma Disney-Fox combination. Right. And that's kind of their long-term um, plan. A very wise man once said to me, Jimmy Lee of J.P. Morgan, who was just you know 
when it came to deals, this was the guy to go for, go to. And he said to me when I was asking him, so what is it that makes you want to put companies together? And he said, one of the key things is that the executives get along. And I'm just curious, Tara, when you look at it from that perspective, is there a better combination? Because that's part of it, right? You've got to think about everybody gets incorporated into the other company. Absolutely. I mean, money talks in this case, too. And, you know, Rupert Murdoch is 87. It seems like James Murdoch, his son, who's CEO of 21st Century Fox right now, seems to want to move on and do something different. So I think they just want to get a deal done. And it seems like Disney would be the easiest way to do that. I mean, they're offering stock. It's a great stock to own long term. It saves them the the tax issue, the tax leakage. And on top of it, I mean, the Murdochs, they they see that Disney probably will have an easier time from a regulatory standpoint, because even though ESPN and the regional sports networks that they'd be buying from Fox will pose a problem, most likely, Disney has already put forth that they are aware of that and they're willing to work with regulators and do what they have to do to get the deal done. Gita, do you agree with Tara that Disney has the inside track? I think so, too. I, I do agree with Tara. I think, first of all, the Murdochs obviously prefer Disney. They kind of view themselves as a long-term shareholder. When all is said and done, uh, they will be the majority shareholder in the combined Disney-Fox assets. Um, and I think, um, you know, they, they really kind of see the marriage of the two content portfolios. I mean, Fox has a fantastic um, collection of assets. So does Disney, and they really want to see it in the hands of, you know, the, the Disney management team. And what's interesting, I'm curious, too, about the assets, what happens. We're talking about if whoever buys it gets Fox's cable networks, international stakes, their regional sports networks, and the film studio. Tara, does it get just put under the existing Disney umbrellas? Because Disney has a, a knack of, whether it was Pixar, whether it was ESPN, whether it was the Marvel assets, to some extent letting them kind of keep their identities, but yet pulling them in and integrating them within the Disney empire. Absolutely. I mean, they're very good at letting the businesses they buy, kind of keeping them the way they were, what made them successful. At the same time, Fox's studio could use a lift, and, you know, Disney, obviously, they're strong point or is the film business. I think they could do a lot with that. Um, and just having more scale and, and, and the costs that they're going to save here, I mean, that can't be overlooked. It's sort of the, the dry part of mergers. But in this case, it's going to be billions of dollars of costs they're going to save. And, you know, that goes right to the bottom line. So I think this is going to be really beneficial for them. And the Murdochs get to keep their crown jewels, the news business and the national sports business. That's right. Gita, really quickly, we only have a, a little bit of time. What about what's left? Is that going to be profitable enough for the for the Murdochs? Yes, it is. So what they have left, as Tara just mentioned, is going to be the Fox News Network. It's going to be all of their broadcast assets. Um, and what they've been doing over the past few months is they've been making some really strategic investments. Mm-hmm. So they went and they purchased Thursday Night Football. Um, they just bought a package from uh, the WWE. And then they also went and purchased some TV stations. So they're really kind of doubling down in their core competencies, right. which is news and sports. Great analysis. Uh, much appreciated, guys. Gals. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Tara LaChapelle, M&A columnist at Bloomberg Opinion uh, in our New York studio, our 1130 studio. Gita Ranganathan, our technology media analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence from our BI headquarters in Princeton, New Jersey. We're continuing to watch the media sector. Carol Master, Bob Avery, this is Bloomberg. My mama told me you 
So check out retail sales. We got the latest read for the month of May. Consumers uh, bouncing back vigorously in the current quarter following a disappointing start to the year for exactly what consumers are doing when it comes to shopping. Lucky for us, back with us is Sarah Quinlan. Uh, she is Senior Vice President of Market Insights at MasterCard Advisors, joining Bob Avery and myself. Uh, she's coming to us from Purchase New York. Uh, Sarah, good to have you back with us. What I love uh, about talking with you, and I know I've said this before, but you guys are seeing, <laughs> courtesy of credit card statements and tabulations of all that data, exactly where consumers are shopping, what they're spending on, and what are the trends. What are you guys seeing? What's the big picture, first of all? Well, the big picture, there's two big focuses for the consumer. First focus is on their existing homes. So they've been investing in hardware, furniture, and furnishings and the like. But the more important one that's been going on is experiential shopping, and that is travel. And we are very much um, flying, driving everywhere, staying in hotels, dining out. Um, and it really is all about the experiences. In fact, it was the uh, number one uh, holiday gift for the last two years running. So people are giving each other experiences like travel instead of, well, for Father's Day coming up, you know, what I really need is a necktie. So they're giving fewer neckties, and I'm gonna, this year I'm going to get a trip to, I don't know, Europe. Exactly. But the key thing is, is if you really think back, it actually goes back to the recession. And because there was permanent wealth loss, people decided, well, what didn't leave them? Well, their family and friends didn't leave them. And and they would rather make a memory, which is permanent, versus a good, which potentially goes away. And so there's really been a permanent shift towards this experiential spending that we see not just in the United States, but abroad as well. What's interesting, too, right, Sarah, I mean, this is something we've been talking about for a few years, this whole idea of what's maybe hurting somewhat the retail environment is that people are just sick mm-hmm. of more stuff and that they'd rather spend money on experience, whether they go somewhere with friends or with loved ones or what have you. So this is a continuation of that trend. Exactly. And and I really believe it will continue further. We really watch um, the millennials, for example, who now have had children. You know, the aspiration is not the big house in the suburbs where I'm mowing the lawn on the weekend. It's, you know, let me take a three-day trip here, a four-day trip there. That's Bob. So Bob's, really, mowing the, Bob's mowing the lawn on the weekend. Right, I'm, actu- I'm actually riding the, the mower to the <laughs> vacation. <laughs> And and I'm on a plane, believe me. (laughs) (laughs) No, but it is interesting if you think about, I mean, you know, we have these conversations in the newsroom all the time, Bob, and I don't know, you know, I don't know if you do too. It's like we keep saying, well, the millennials are different. But, you know, as people say, no, they're not. They're maybe putting off starting a family, putting off buying a home, putting off moving to the suburbs just because they got hurt too in the crisis and they're paying off student debt. Yeah, exactly. A lot of them started their adult life paying off monster debt. Right. Right. But the key thing that's really interesting is that's really not we see the same behavior in the baby boomer generation that we're seeing in the millennials here. This is a societal shift to saying that we prefer to use our time to do something together as opposed to buying more goods. And if you look at even in home building, the new homes are 200 square feet smaller than they used to be. So we're not even expecting to fill it with as much stuff as we did before. Because, you know, the bigger the the home is, the bigger the more you have to clean. I'm just saying there's just that much. It's a bigger headache. Exactly. But I think the key thing is is that you look at this destination index that we publish, and you can really see that it also brings in a lot of other
other things that we like, which is, for example, ecotourism and, mm-hmm. and you know, ex- cultural tourism and culinary tourism. So it actually goes into many of the themes that we're living, um, which is why it's been interesting to sort of watch the spend sort of follow in this way, regardless of what, um, you know, previous spending patterns were. You know, in order to fill up my uh, my rider mower, I actually don't have a rider mower, so I don't know how I'm going to ride to the, my vacation spot. But in order to fill up my pusher mower, it's going to cost me three dollars a gallon. Is do you see anything yep. in the upcoming summer that's going to that's going to curtail traveling? Well, it's interesting. We publish our gasoline report each Tuesday, and I finally saw for the first time in months a three cent per gallon uh, drop in gasoline on average across the country. And I'm just hopeful that that will continue because overall, you are absolutely correct. Gasoline is up 23.4% year on year. And in that, along with food inflation that we are seeing in spending, uh, is my two major concerns that could actually pull this back. But that being said, the key thing we know, especially in flying vacations, um, people buy two months ahead of time. And we continue to see great strength in airline purchases and online travel agency purchases, which means that people have already made that investment for the summer. So they're going sort of regardless. Um, um, But what they might do when they get there, instead of renting a car where they're driving all the time, is use an, an alternative where they're only taking one short ride. All right. Sarah Quinlan, good to get some time with you, check in with you. Sarah Quinlan, she's Senior Vice President of Market uh, Insights at MasterCard Advisors on the phone from Purchase New York. Small is beautiful, right, Kevin Kelly? He's our next <laughs> He's our next guest. He's a strategy analyst at the in-house group of analysts here at uh, Bloomberg and Bloomberg Intelligence. Kevin, welcome to the show. Thank you. You say small caps may need a breather. I don't know what that means. Tell me. Yeah. So obviously there's been a lot of talk around small caps. It's a great week to be talking about them. They continue to make you know all-time highs, uh, which is a transition from what we saw in 2017 where they, they lagged their large cap peers. Not to say they didn't have you know solid returns, about 10%, um, but compared to the S&P that had such a great 2017, I mean, it kind of pales in comparison. Um, and so Can small, I just throw out the numbers? Yeah. Small cap stocks are up more than 9% this year. That's double pretty much both mid and large cap stocks. So they really have been on a tear. Yeah, they really have. And there's a lot of talk around why that is. And, and part of it obviously naturally stems to the dollar um, with them being more domestically oriented companies. So they don't get caught up in the trade. Exactly. Potential a little bit trade more wars. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And so but what we took a step back and looked at was, you know, the earnings expectations for a lot of these small cap companies, um, again, relative to their larger peers are really starting to improve. And a lot of these sectors um, are actually expected to grow faster than large cap peers. So it's, it's more than a dollar story. Now, where we get into the idea of taking a breather is, Yes, we're very constructive on small caps longer term, especially if we continue to see, you know, a a robust economic backdrop. But the breather really comes in from kind of a technical standpoint, so a much more kind of short-term idea. Whereas um, a couple of things that we look at, you know, just to to, um, clarify or I guess you could say support a sustainable rally in any index, any market, is how many companies within um, those indices are actually participating in that rally, right? You don't want it just led by a couple of names right at the top. Mm -hmm. And so what you see with small caps is about over 80% of their companies now um, in the S&P 600 are actually trading above their 50-day moving average, which is something that we monitor. So pretty broad. 
broad based. Pretty broad based, exactly. Participation. Um, but numbers, as we see that kind of creep up a little bit, the last time it reached 90 percent, which, again, it sounds strong because it is strong. But the short term implications for that uh, may be a little bit of a pullback. When you saw this in late 2016, uh, September of 2017, you actually saw small caps come down about three to four percent over the next six weeks. So it's more so a shorter term, may need to take, take a breather, have normalized um, breath. Uh, um, so is it just a valuation thing and they've just gotten ahead of themselves or what? A little bit. Yeah, yeah. It's, okay. a good, it's a good way to put it. They have gotten a little bit ahead of themselves. Like I said, I mean, we're, we're constructive on them because they are expected to grow faster. And you would expect that um, kind of at, at this point, given uh, given the backdrop that we have in terms of the economic uh, surprise data that's coming in. And what's the timing of this breather that you're talking about? So uh, – over the next probably month or so, um, uh, there is a lot of sentiment, uh, positive sentiment around small caps, um, and we can see that in ETF flow data. That's kind of recovered compared to large cap peers that are still seeing outflows um, the last couple months on on a, on a rolling three month basis. Um, but yeah, it's much more kind of short term, four to six weeks. You know, it's kind of the time period we, we were looking at. Um, and like I said, we, we remain constructive on them. You know, longer term through the year end. Um, but this would be kind of a, a healthy moderation of gains, you could say, if they if they want to continue to push higher. And what sectors are we going to be, see doing better than the others? Yeah, so as we kind of get towards the end of 2018 and into 2019, um, you know, one of the big things we're looking at for the entire equity market, and this is small caps and large caps um, and mid caps for that matter, is uh, the cyclical versus defensive names. It sounds simplistic, but when you think about it, we you know investors buy stocks and they get in equities for that expected future earnings growth, right? And so when you actually look at where the earnings growth is going to be, it's a lot of these more cyclical sectors like your materials, your industrials, um, which uh, industrials, for example, is the largest uh, sector within the small cap index, whereas you have the tech behemoths obviously driving a lot of large caps. Kevin, can I just ask you, yep. you know, I'm sure you were listening to Jay Powell yesterday of the U.S. Central Bank, and he, um, I heard Jonathan Farrow kind of say this, and I thought the same thing. He kept saying, man, growth is good, good. <laughs> he was very optimistic. If that bears out, and I thought, I was just searching for something on the Bloomberg, because I thought I heard somebody even projecting, me. it was on radio this morning, um, about like, Potential for five percent economic growth here in the U.S. I know that seems that's why. Forgive me, I'm trying to find it so yeah, that yeah. I can actually put it out there. No, I mean, but there's... if growth continues or picks up, there's no reason why small caps can't continue their run. That's exactly it, too. And what we'll look at too, Bloomberg's got a great index, the uh, Economic Surprise Index, right? Mm-hmm. So basically, mm-hmm. not just looking at you know what the rates of growth are, but how that data is coming in relative to expectations. And again, you know, you look at it and you compare small to large caps, and you see as we've seen economic you know surpri- data coming in you know stronger than expected, so a, a positive reading on that index. Um, you've seen small caps outperform as as you as you would expect. So if that trend continues, to your point, right? Um, then yeah, there is no reason why small caps couldn't couldn't continue to outperform from here. You know, Carol knows this about me. I'm a natural pessimist. <laughs> He's so he I is. walk around with like a he walks smile in this, on my face. No, he walks in the studio and then all of a sudden it gets really gray, <laughs> some clouds, it starts to sprinkle a little bit. My first rain. wife was Morticia Adams. <laughs> I heard that. But she was too cheerful for me. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm always being told that if stocks are high, you want to sell because then you'll make some money on them, right, before they go down. How I mean, and the two of you were just going back and forth about how this can go on forever, and we heard the term five percent forever and ever and 5% ever. Five percent GDP. Okay. All right, I'm looking. I'm looking for the justification. I yeah, know I, I don't know, somewhere. but all right. But what's the what? What could possibly trigger some some falling in the in that? 
optimistic yes, picture. Absolutely. And some of the risks that you know you always have to be obviously aware of the risks. I think first and foremost to slow down to your point in the data that's coming in. If we see a rollover, you have seen a bit of a deceleration in other markets. If we if that trickles over to the US, um, that's certainly a risk that we're watching for. Uh, there's a lot of talk about yield curve inversion. Um, what's interesting about that is, you know, our, our team's done some work on this, is that right now, actually, when you look at the yield curve, going back to, to the comments from the Fed yesterday, um, when you see that inversion, yes, obviously, we know that that's bad for, for, for stocks, usually signals a recession. But when it's flattening or in this, this uh, range that it's in right now, it's actually a really good time to be in the equity market. We've looked at back historically over a couple of different cycles. And right now, you, you know, that's a great time to be in the equity market. Um, valuations after that recent correction. Uh, you know, back in the early early 2018 valuations, you know, still still, uh, uh, um, you know, some people can argue relatively high. But when you look at it compared to a five year average, for example, it's right smack back in line with what you would expect um, or where you want to see those. So we have had a little bit of repricing. Again, earnings growth remains uh, strong. The expectations for earnings growth remain strong. So until you really see a rollover in, you know, earnings expectations for these companies or um, the economic backdrop, there there really isn't um, a ton of of argument not to uh, not to be in the equity. What market. about the laggards uh, within the small cap space? Are they do they still have some room to run higher? Uh, they could, but and who are they? Which, so, which part? Yeah, so some of the defensive names. If you look at the ones that have performed, you know the the sector that have performed best this year. Um, some of the ones that still haven't done you know terribly well are some of the more yield proxies. You've obviously mm-hmm. gotten you know a, 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 a sell off in uh, in treasuries. You have that ten year push in three percent. Right. Some of those names like the real estate utility names. Um, you know you're buying those for you know the dividend as that kind of gets competed away with these other fixed income alternatives. Um, we think that type of trend where the defensive names don't perform nearly as well as some of the more cyclical ones like I was talking about. We think that is uh, is going to continue on as well. One of the reasons is as I mentioned the the dividend yields not being as attractive in a relative basis. But the other one is that if you look at the debt that these companies carry, um, a lot of these companies are more indebted than, for example, technology. If you look at large cap tech, um, it's really interesting. There's been this push in the equity market, this focus more on profitability and Mm -hmm. kind of away from high leverage. And that's actually right, kind of the sweet spot for technology right now. Um, So those types of companies, those laggards or defensive names, could potentially get uh, uh, a... potentially not really do too well in this scenario, again, if you have rising rates, if you have rising borrowing costs. I think it is Stephen Stanley of Amherst Pierpoint. I think he's been looking, maybe it's second quarter growth. He boosted his projection to 4.2%. This was back at the end of May, but I think he's been pretty optimistic. So not five. Anyway, no. All right. I'm looking. I'm looking. I'm looking. Okay. Kevin <laughs> Kelly, strategy analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. Man, tough crowd. Whenever I see your smiling face, I have to smile myself. Did you know Facebook is quietly paying academics to do social science research? I did not know this before. I did not know that either. Before Sarah Fryer's uh, story came out today, she's a technology reporter with Bloomberg News, and she's in our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. Welcome to Bloomberg Market, Sarah. Thanks for having me. So why does Facebook do this, and what's like the ultimate goal here of, of partnering with academics to do social science research? So Facebook is in an increasingly tricky spot when it comes to collaborating with academics. Uh, The Cambridge Analytica scandal, which we've all talked about at length, uh, came out of collaboration with a researcher who later gathered data on up to 87 million 
87 million Facebook users, sorry, and shared that with a third party. So on one hand, we have this company that's becoming just this powerful force in the world with so much impact on our news consumption, our elections, our tech addiction, all of these things. At the same time, it's difficult for them to really share their data with academics to explore these issues because they're concerned about privacy. Uh, And so that balance um, has been very difficult for the company. There are some cases where they just straight up give researchers $25,000 grants to pursue something. In other cases, uh, when Facebook data is actually involved, they will have stipulations in the contract that are much more uh, restricted or where people can't publish unless they have Facebook's approval, which kind of incentivizes them to not pursue anything that might reflect badly on the company because who wants to work on something only to have it not go out. Now, Facebook's not like any, you know, isn't any different from any other company. It doesn't want negative, uh, like you just said, it doesn't want uh, negative information coming out. But there's, it, it just, it smells really bad to me that, you know, there's so many risks, ethical risks and in, endangering people's privacy. What What is, is Facebook doing anything to... To, to, to make it less likely that bad things will happen? So there was a bad thing that happened a few, few years ago when Facebook did this emotional contagion study where they, they uh, changed up some people's news feeds and showed them happier posts or sad posts and, and tracked whether it made them happier or sadder, uh, depending on what the, the makeup of their feed was. That caused a, a, an uproar from the public as expected when it was published. And uh, Facebook then started this internal review board where they would think about the ethical consequences of their research. Um, But academics still want to be able to explore these questions because you have this global group of 2 billion plus people who are always posting interaction with each other. And more insight into how they behave could help solve societal problems. Um, But Facebook doesn't want to fall into the same sort of public uh, outcry that it that it did a few years ago in that case, or or like it has this year with Cambridge Analytica. You know, I have to tell you, at one point I was considering being a doctor early on in my career, um, and I remember actually interning at a hospital, a major hospital, and going to their R and D lab, and it was lots of animals, and it was a little uncomfortable. You know, but they were testing out things. I mean, we, in essence, I'm not a Facebook user, but anybody who's on Facebook is essentially a guinea pig, correct? Right. They're acting in the open. Uh, a lot of people do make public posts, and, and those posts can be seen by, you know, anyone who searches for them on Google. And, or, you know, and researchers have to, to figure out how to get this data. Twitter, I should say, is very open about collaborating with researchers because mm-hmm. so much of Twitter is public. But on Facebook, you have different privacy preferences. Yeah. You have people who post only to their friends. It gets so much harder to get a good picture of what's going on there. And to be fair, I mean, folks have talked about all the data that Google has and all the data that Facebook has. And when you're looking at maybe, you know, the world of medicine, that you often can get these really big samples of of people, you know, accessing them pretty quickly to kind of figure out things. So that there is an upside to this, right? I don't want to be so negative on everything. I mean, what or what is the upside, Sarah? Well, the upside is understanding uh, these issues that have come to 
haunt the upside for the business is understanding these issues that are not just product issues but more existential issues about mm-hmm. Facebook's role in the world. Like how does it affect how we vote? How does it affect how we interact with each other? What kind of news we consume? Uh, how we decide to organize our lives. I mean, all of these questions about tech and its impact on society. Facebook is a company that's uh, only about 14 years old. And so they've had such a profound impact on how we use the Internet and how we we share information. And so these those questions are valid questions. And right. for the business as well, now that they're under so much global scrutiny for their role in society, for them to understand what the biggest uh, challenges will be in their future, they want to go to academics and get their input. Right. And understand uh, but, the impact and influence it can have, right? Right. Absolutely. And academics can help them deal with their blind spots because research historically at the company was more focused on the product. I mean, what is going to get people to use Facebook more? What's going to make them feel good about using Facebook more. Uh, but now uh, there yeah. has to be this this broader questioning of the company. I find it fascinating. You know, it, but it also right. it, it also seems unfair that you just sign away everything when you click on A, I agree to the... Uh, to the uh, well, this is know. what everybody's working for, right? Greater transparency over this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Sarah Fryer, thank you. Technology reporter at Bloomberg News from our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. Yep, it's a tricky area, Bob Avery, no doubt about it. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. I really hope our next guest has some bad news to counteract all of today's rainbows and unicorns. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Nonstop. His name is Brad McMillan. He's the chief investment officer for Commonwealth Financial Network in Waltham, Massachusetts. Welcome to Bloomberg Markets, Brad. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. And I know that everybody's gotten nauseous or at least is getting tooth decay from all the sweetness and light about how everything's just perfect and totally wonderful in our economy right now. Can you help me out here, Brad? Do you have any counter, counter information for us? Well, I'll tell you this. They call me Eeyore in the office, and there's a reason for that. So I have to say things are really good right now, but what I've been saying to our clients is things are good, things are great, but the question is, is this as good as it gets? And I think there are some signs that it may be. Why? What are the signs? Yeah. Well, let's look at a couple of things. I mean, some of the best indicators of economic trouble we had are consumer confidence rolling over, are the yield curve inverting, is business confidence rolling over, and is job growth starting to flatten. And what we've seen with all of those, a couple of months ago, we actually saw all of those edging down into trouble territory. Now, they've actually started to bounce back up, but consumer confidence is at a level that we had never seen before before the dot-com boom. We're way into nosebleed territory. How much better can it get? Job growth, we now have more job openings than we do have unemployed people. We've never seen that before. We're running out of people. Job growth is going to slow. It has to. 
Then when you look at the yield curve, we have the Fed raising rates were at post-crisis lows in terms of the longer-term, shorter-term spread. And when you look at business confidence, again, we're, this is as good as it gets. And what that means is at some point, probably in the next year or so, we're headed down. Carol is starting to depress even me now. See, there you go. Well, okay, so when we go down, because we have seen certainly an increase in volatility, which is much more normal. It's been abnormal the last few years where the markets just seem to go higher and higher. Although I shouldn't say that because I feel like over the last couple of years we've had some big drops too. Um, when things start to come undone, how much undone? And is it a kind of a quick dip to the downside or do you see a protracted maybe bear market? Well, right now, I don't see anything of the sort. I mean, one of the yeah. things I've been saying is people are feeling good. You know, it's, it's getting a little bit boring. I get that. You know, but the thing is we have to enjoy this, but then we have to look when things roll over because when you look at valuations, when the rollover does come, and it's, I doubt very much it will be this year. It's probably not 2019, maybe 2020. If we just revert to valuation levels of, say, you know, 20 of 2007, that could imply a significant drop right there. And there's a lot more room below that as well. You've listed uh, some of the sectors that are, uh, that, are, that are strong and some that are not so strong. Um, let's, let's get into a, little, a few details now. You say that fin- the, the world for financial stocks is terrific right now. Why? you look at today's numbers, maybe you wouldn't think so, but a lot of that is actually coming from global banks, a lot of the downdraft there, because because what they're facing is serious systemic risk, potentially, from the rest of the world. There are some real issues going on in emerging markets, but if you look domestically, if you look at the smaller banks, the regional banks, they're benefiting from deregulation. You know, they've already been, those, those banks have already significantly benefited, and they will have more and more of the shackles taken off. Then you look at the interest rates, you know, if we see if we start to see rates go up and banks can continue to control what they pay their depositors, their spreads are going to help. And as the economy keeps growing, we're only going to see lending growing. So they're hit they're going to be firing on all cylinders. Now on the other side, uh, the less strong stocks, you've listed consumer staples. That interests me because I consume staples too. What's uh, what's the pressures downward for those? Well, big picture, what you have is you have a market that's focusing on growth stocks, and what we're not getting is growth on the uh, consumer staples. They are caught in this kind of uh, e-commerce deflationary trap. You know, we're seeing the we're seeing brands more or less disintermediated through first of all supermarket owned brands and then through the Amazon effect, which is just dialing down the profits even on those. Second, they're getting hit by supply cost increases. So they're getting hammered from both ends. They can't raise prices even as their costs go up. So I think they're in a tough spot and no one's really figured out how to run a consumer staples company in the e commerce era. Yeah, it's kind of interesting, right? We always talk about consumer staples. You need it. You know, good economy, bad economy. You need toilet paper. You need toothpaste. You need all that kind of stuff. Uh, And yet um, there is definitely pressure on a lot of those businesses, Brad. You need toilet paper. You don't necessarily need Charmin. Where do you get the perception of value for Charmin? From the advertising, from the placement in the supermarket. In an e-commerce world, you've got a lot more choices, and it's not just about advertising. It's about reviews. You know, I really miss Mr. Whipple. I mean, that was (laughs) – what a great ad campaign that was. Oh, my God. That was. 
Don't squeeze the Charmin. Right, but it was a definitely different uh, retail environment. Hey, Brad McMillan, we got to run. Good to check in with you. Brad McMillan, he's Chief Investment Officer at Commonwealth Financial Network. $156 billion in assets under management. Uh, Brad joining us from Waltham, Massachusetts. All right, you are listening to Bloomberg Markets. Just a few minutes left in today's trading session. We'll have those closing numbers in just a few minutes. Also look at some of the movers and shakers on this Thursday. Carol Master, Bob Ivry, and you are listening to Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. 